Hey everybody and welcome to Twig 28. Today we'll be, we will be covering four articles. Uh, the first is Snapchat invests in mobile gaming with launch of Snap Games by a publication called Complex. The second is Apex Legends won't dethrone Fortnite, but there's still nothing like it from The Verge. The third is how Calibri went from minimal viable product to 70 million installs for its idle tycoon games from Pocket Gamer. And finally, the extremely well-written How Bioware's Anthem Went Wrong from, uh, from Kotaku. And today we are uh, without Mishka today, but instead um, we are joined by uh, guest host Adam Telfer, who uh, writes the mobile blog, mobilefreetoplay.com, which is an excellent blog. If you haven't checked it, checked it out, please do check it out. But Adam, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, my name is Adam. Um, for the last six years, I've lived in Berlin uh, and worked at a company called Wuga, uh, as well as started up a company called Chatterbox doing Facebook instant games. Um, and actually just started here in LA in January working at uh, Warner Brothers. Great. And I know, you know, one of the advantages of having Adam and Eric on is that you, you guys actually play a lot of these console games, right? Sounds yeah. like you guys are spending quite a, quite a lot of time um, actually playing the game. So it's not just, you know, high level analysis. We're, we're actually getting actual players here. So that's Fantastic. Yeah, the, um, the division two is sucking my life and all productivity. <laughs> so, but I'm now level capped so I can relax and just, you know, until the next update bit. comes out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So maybe we can just go ahead and kick it off with the first one. Uh, I'll take that one Snapchat invests in mobile gaming with launch of Snap Games. And so, just a quick, um, Summary of the article. So Snapchat launched a multiplayer gaming platform with exclusive games. And in this article, it notes that um, one of the primary motivations for this is that Snap is actually hoping to bring back users after the mass exodus following the launch of Instagram Stories. And the launch will actually include six games from devs, including you know, well-known games such well-known developers such as Zeptolab and Zynga. And currently, the monetization model is is ads only. So, I, so there's no IAP at launch, but um, that doesn't mean that it may not be introduced later. And finally, this move is a follow up uh, to the 2017 acquisition of Pretty Great, the studio that built Fruit Ninja. And my own take on on this article is that it, it feels that this is something that should be a big deal, but actually, I, I don't really think it, it, it is. I mean, will this actually help get users back on Snap? I, I actually don't think so. I think that this could uh, increase engagement on Snap, could help increase uh, monetization for the company. But you know, these sort of instant game platforms in the West don't seem to have had the same success as, as an Asian market, so. From my perspective, it just doesn't feel that it can move the needle too much unless they have some kind of, you know, exclusive game that that is a monster hit and that goes super viral. But uh, yeah, that's that. That th those are the only thoughts I have on that. Um, Eric and Adam, do you guys have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm not clear if they can really scale any better than something like Facebook. <laughs> so I'm not really sure how viable this market is. You know, Snapchat kind of has more incentive maybe than Facebook to make this work um, as, you know, given their current profile and position in the market. Um, you know, for Facebook, it seems a kind of an afterthought um, and it seems like they're not very helpful with the developers on this on this platform. You know, and from the from a um, investment perspective, you know, Snap came out and uh, at around $17 and it was up at $22 at this peak. And now it's sitting at 12. It's recovered a little bit over. Because I think it got it netted down to like six dollars, so it's basically double what it was at this low. Um, because I, they are, I think they are seeing so, a little bit more traction in the marketplace, but but fundamentally, you know, I think this is kind of a a way of showing that they're there, they're doing something new, they're trying to grow their user base. Uh, I just don't know how successful this is really can can be, and likely they're paying Zynga and the other publisher they talked about a lot of money to support the platform. I would think. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just really unclear as how big this audience can be and how engaged this audience can be in order to monetize on on, on a messenger app or messenger game. Um, and without, you know, right now it's all advertising anyway. So anyway, I, AT, what do you think? 
Yeah, um, I guess I've got the experience because I've worked on these Facebook instant games and I was there in that market through the year and a half that was kind of just getting started. Um, And I saw a lot of the struggles that came with that, even at the scale that Facebook Messenger has, right? Um, With Snap and this platform, I just have a really hard time believing this will be really any better, especially if it's going to be restricting itself to only ad revenue, um, as well as that that ad is actually just being reliant on their brand new audience network. And I think the audience network makes sense. Um, this may be a little bit less so, but still it's going to be very, very brand new. It's going to take a long time before they can actually get to the same uh, optimization that Facebook has. And I think Facebook just has the network to, to support it. Um, but on the, so say, say if the ad side is actually semi-decent, there's also seems to be some restrictions around things like synchronous multiplayer around these games. I'm not sure if, if you guys saw any different from the articles. From my research, it seemed like it was mostly focused on these sync multiplayer kind of streaming experiences, which is great, but that adds a necessary or unnecessary additional restriction of needing all your friends online at the same time, which is not really great for building retention on the platform that... Um, yeah, when when I have my experience for building for these kind of messenger systems, async is typically better. When you can actually right, like I, I send a move to another friend, um, I can do my session on my own, um, but then I'm just supported by having my network. Um, actually, more more similar to say early Facebook free to play style design rather than necessarily synchronous multiplayer right from the get go. It took mobile, it took Facebook quite a lot of time to get to that point. Um, so yeah, retention is going to be a struggle. So if retention is going to be a struggle, then I have a really hard time believing that this is going to be a viable business case for any external developer without, without snap really kind of propping it up with their own money. Uh, and also it has the same problems as Facebook instant where the actual game UI is not really that prominent because of course it's just a side experiment. Um, and there's actually no focus on any ways to kind of bookmark or install the games that you actually want to play. Um, I know also they, they they built out a similar system recently for their augmented reality games um, where they actually had the camera uh, where you could actually scroll over. You could play a game with your camera and send it over to your friend. And even in that case, this was just a scrolling list of games where they randomly would be or semi-randomly be deciding who would be in that list. And that's not really driving retention. And I think... Yeah, I think that the the big problem on top of all of this is that they still have to get this all okayed by Apple um, and Google through uh, those platforms. And I know with Facebook Instant, that's been a constant struggle for Facebook. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be the same idea as, I don't know if we actually talked about this on the podcast before, but it's kind of chasing the dragon. You know, they see the success of WeChat in, in China and they're like, they want to replicate it in the West. But the reality of it is the usage, use case of something like WeChat versus something like Facebook Instant Messenger and certainly Snapchat is just so different because WeChat is like integrated in the lives of people in China, you know, and they're using it for everything, right? And they're just they're 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 always on that system and and they just much more much stickier. So uh, retention is a lot easier when they're always on the system. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Well, WeChat has all of those different apps that people are already in, and that's kind of the expectation within that app, as well as they have the prowess of China behind them to be able to defend against things like Apple and Google um, breaking their business case. So, yeah, I don't think you have this with Snap. So this is a long uphill battle for them to work. And I think it will take them throwing a lot of money at the platform to make it drive any sort of engagement that they will want to actually have. And uh, at least say with versus instant, I wouldn't open this up to a ton of developers too early because the, the external business case doesn't make any sense yet. Cool. So moving on to the second article, Adam. Yeah, sure. Um, so the second article is regarding apex legends. And it really has to do with the the battle I think we've all been following since Apex came out, uh, came out, came out uh, which is that Apex Legends will not, the, the thesis of the article is that Apex Legends will not dethrone Fortnite, but there still is nothing like it. Um, because uh, if you've been following Apex, uh, it launched as a surprise in February 2019 um, in the first 72 hours. The headlines were that it got about 10 million players, uh, about a million concurrent which is incredible. And then over the first month, it reached about 50 million downloads. And to compare that to say Fortnite, Fortnite had something like 100 million um, in 
uh, almost a year, I think it was. Uh, and uh, Superdata uh, has um, estimated that the game has roughly made about 92 million within that first month. So 50 million downloads and $92 million in the first month. Um, so yeah, the, the, the success of Apex is, is incredible, um, especially in that launch window. So now things have started to die down a little bit. It became obvious that EA uh, paid a bunch of prominent streamers to play the game. I think we all could understand that uh, as a marketing tactic. Um, what was interesting was that most of these streamers actually, you know, kept playing the game and kept engaging with it, which is great. Uh, the product actually stood on its own, uh, which is really what you want. Um, and overall, at least from a player myself, it is an incredibly amazing game. The quality of life additions that they did to Battle Royale uh, were very, very clear. The ability to revive teammates kind of kept you in the game, even when you're waiting for your friends um, or after you've you've passed. And the abilities added uh, added so much to the game that it really made every round feel significantly different than most Battle Royale games because you were constantly playing against completely different loadouts than uh, um, most Battle Royale games like Fortnite, etc. What this typically or what this really did was started to convert a lot of the players from, say, PUBG and COD, uh, less so players from Fortnite. So even though I think we want the headlines about Apex versus Fortnite, for the most part, uh, Apex has been eating into Fortnite players. Um, And my assumption is that Apex has really been eating into the audience that wanted a battle royale game, but without, say, the Fortnite level of building, without the Fortnite, you know, kid friendly kind of approach but was in a far more solid state than PUBG or say Call of Duty um, with its kind of arcade shooting. Um, So that's really what Apex was. It was kind of aiming more towards this PUBG and Call of Duty crowd, a first person shooter, mostly on say PC versus uh, Fortnite, which is say a little bit more kid friendly, a little bit more safe safe in that regard. Um, So overall Apex had a big splash, but has been on a steady decline since its launch. So if you actually look at the Twitch numbers, uh, the average viewers in February were roughly about 218,000, and now we're sitting at about 48.6 average viewers for April. That's roughly about an 80% decrease. And in terms of Twitch spots, they've moved from the number one spot to the number six spot. So still commendable, but at the same time, their business case has kind of changed. Um, the article argues that while Apex you know, has, has been on this decline and probably will not beat Fortnite, it still earns the right to that number two spot in Battle Royale. Um, so the the article kind of goes into why they think Apex uh, actually dropped. Um, I'll just kind of summarize four key points. Um, the one is that Apex is now too core for casual players to enjoy. Uh, that matchmaking um, has actually started making it so that there's just too many amazing players in this game and anybody just starting the game for, from scratch now is going to struggle. Um, from my take, I'm pretty doubtful on that. I think matchmaking only improves um, when you, you've got the the user number that they have. So unless they're really screwing up their matchmaking, I'm assuming they can actually put the right people in the right pools. Um, number two, uh, Apex Battle Pass was not exciting. Uh, definitely didn't help. Um, and my take was that, yeah, it was still declining pretty quickly before the Battle Pass, but the Battle Pass definitely didn't help. There was no sort of meaningful increase in engagement or in Twitch numbers. Uh, from the Battle Pass launch. Um, Third is that Apex innovations have been copied by Fortnite. Um, So right after launch, Fortnite actually copied the ping system very, very quickly. Uh, And then just recently, Fortnite launched their respawn system. So that whole aspect of, hey, I can wait for my teammates to respawn me um, now is coming to Fortnite. And fourth is that Fortnite has aggressively added retention-focused features into the game basically allowing players to purchase free or get the free battle pass uh, as well as um, earn free skins. Um, yeah, so in terms of where this kind of nets out in in, in Apex, uh, streamers have sort of naturally come back to Fortnite. And I think that's mostly to do with just streamers following the money and they just kind of follow where the, the streams will get the most views. So as players have kind of naturally moved back to Fortnite, that that um, that was say more their audience. They move back, but at the same time, you know, the the Fortnite or, or the uh, Apex numbers are still very very commendable. Uh, Fortnite continues to launch a heavy cadence of content. That's new event modes, new cosmetics, 
uh, all the while Apex has actually remained quite stale. So while the battle pass landed without much re-engagement from the players, there's also not a lot new coming from the game. So my sense is that really Apex has just kind of hit a stale point in its development and needs significant investment in order to kind of break out of it. Uh, they did include a new character recently, Octane, but to be honest, it didn't really change much of the meta, so it didn't really change much how the game has been played. That's um, still kind of the, the the usual thing versus Fortnite has been constantly launching a ton of new modes, including um, more investment in that sandbox mode, which is kind of like lo- uh, Roblox within Fortnite. Um, so I, th- I think the quote from this article that I would kind of re- reiterate is right at the end is, if Respawn wants to make a hit that stays relevant, it needs to make Apex a game that can change and adapt just as fast as the attention spans of its players. So, yeah, my, my key question here is, is what can Apex do to recover? So I'll, I'll pass it to, to you, Eric. Sure. I mean, I think um, it's uh, I've been looking at this obviously really closely because it's, you know, really clearly uh, strategic for EA to get this thing working. Um, I want to say first off that you're totally right, like uh, or the article was right, was that, you know, Apex did not dethrone Fortnite in any way, really. Um, they did have some overlap and, and some audience moved over. But Apex actually almost annihilated Overwatch, and then it also had a significant impact on Call of Duty um, in terms of their um, their you know revenue generation from their um, <clears throat> their online modes as well as just player base in general. Um, the one thing it did have an effect was that Fortnite did see a dip in revenue because Fortnite responded to their success of Apex by giving away their uh, battle pass for free or based upon you know completing some challenges. So anyway, it did have kind of an impact in the market overall. Um, but the one thing I think this article and, and, and kind of some of the conclusions that people are having is that, uh, the, the Twitch's Twitch's success is, you know, conflated with is not actually as accurate as how much revenue they're actually generating, because despite the fact that their Twitch numbers are really low from where they launched, I think they generated more revenue in March than they did in February. And I think they did around 150 million if my estimates are right. So, the game is still maintaining a really dedicated audience of core players and they are spending. So that's actually really good for EA in general. So the question is, can they maintain that audience? And uh, to the point of the article is that they really messed up. You know, they messed up in the first, uh, the battle pass. It was just not very, very compelling. Right. And I think we said in a previous podcast, there's two things that could go really wrong with this. One is that EA could screw it up. Or two, um, you know, the team that's never done live services, um, you know, this would hurt them. And I think the latter is true. And the former could happen going forward. Who knows? You know, EA screws up a lot of things. Um, But nonetheless, you know, the battle pass was just not well conceived and it was not compelling. And even though a lot of people spent on it, it, they clearly got a huge bump during that launch. Um, I don't think it was as compelling as it should be. So. My understanding is that basically all hands are in deck to make sure this thing is fixed. I'm talking to some people that are interviewing for PM roles, et cetera, like that, that are pretty close to the stuff. So, um, you know, they, they will get the key hires and, and, and hopefully, um, get to work. But if you actually even look at the Twitch numbers, the base, the low base that they're at right now is actually relatively high, right. Compared to other games in this, in, in all of Twitch for that matter. And so, there is still interest there. They just need to capitalize it on introductions of new maps, new modes, new battle pass, new characters. You know, they just need to support it. And my understanding is they are on the path of making sure that happens. And I think it'll be culminated into the next battle pass in the next month or so. We'll see. Um, for EA, EA stocks kind of come down a bit, particularly partially because of this issue is that they don't think they can capitalize on 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 this game. Uh, the way they should be, and that the the Twitch numbers that they're seeing and these articles that are in the in the print in the press are are kind of hurting it. So, uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think what this game will do will kind of service that more core gamer in the West. You know, that PUBG, Call of Duty, and Overwatch, Battlefield to some degree, but no one really cares about Battlefield at this point. Um, but while these audiences are smaller uh, than something like Fortnite, they're likely bigger spenders. So what you should see is maybe perhaps a higher conversion rate, but also more importantly, a higher spend per player. Um, you know, similar to what you see for like something like FIFA, right? Um, now, of course, they can always 
as I said, you know, one of the first issues is the EA could screw this up. It's possible, but I think actually they might be in good shape. And my, my thinking, you know, and what I'm telling my clients is that I think this is a $500 million business, right? Um, I think if, if they don't do 500 million in the next 12 months, I think they screwed up and it's, and for EA, it's really positive because it's basically adding another FIFA ultimate team to their library. And it's actually better margins for EA because there's no royalties attached to it with FIFA. So I'm actually relatively bullish on this game. And I think uh, a lot of the press is um, conflating the issues around what Twitch viewership is versus what revenue is being generated. So we will see if I am right or wrong on this one. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on the on those points, especially things with the Battle Pass in terms of how they developed it. Um, yeah, the, the Battle Pass definitely landed with a thud, um, which was not great. I think the biggest misstep that they took there actually was with not including a mission system, not actually including any sort of other way to engage with the content. It was just a simple XP system. So it basically just meant that you were just reinforcing the same game, which kind of felt stale by that point. Uh, instead of actually ask, asking players to to do a bunch of different missions that all felt a little bit differently. Um, and I think that was kind of the key misstep. Um, but I think um, what can Apex do to recover? Um, to your point, talking, like making sure that the key hires are there. And I think um, EA and Respawn are smart. They're going to get the right hires in the right places and they're going to get the team up to the size that they need. Um, but my question is, it just is it just about butts and seats? Is it just about getting the number of people together or what should they actually be focusing on? And I think um, I think to, to really own this kind of second spot in the Battle Royale genre and really own that PUBG, COD, Counter-Strike audience is really should be their focus. Um, Fortnite is at a level that I don't think anybody else really should compete with in terms of how much they focus on things like skins uh, to actually drive content into the game and drive their revenue. Um, whereas, whereas Apex has a lot more focus on their loot box system and on their, their character system, which should drive the higher spend depth from that lower audience size. Um, so my suggestion is really to double down on your audience and to continue to eat into that PUBG and COD audience and even try to focus a little bit more on things like a competitive framework, actually pulling players closer together and actually pulling things like a leaderboard, um, even a, a sharding-based leaderboard, one that you're pulling a smaller group together. So competition's a little bit more in focus versus, say, something like Fortnite, where things are still pretty hidden and things kind of reset um, in, in the background. Uh, with something like Apex, if you can kind of push up the, the competition as well as um, aim for that PUBG COD audience, I think um, they can really double down on the, their strengths here. Um, JK? Yeah, so for me, you know, I'm not as familiar with these games. I don't play them as much, but for, more from like an analytical view, I, I, I kind of really think about like, like if we're really comparing and stacking Fortnite against Apex Legends, you know, I, I really try to think about what are the bases of competition around, you know, around success and, and, and who's going to be able to be more successful ultimately. And, and really, I, I kind of like boil that down into like four different areas. And, and the first is like around the economy and monetization granularity. And in this regard, I think Fortnite is just at a structural advantage relative to um, Apex because Fortnite has a very flexible fiction, as we've talked about before. And so that allows for more interesting cosmetics and, um, as opposed to catering to a more realistic fiction. And so, you know, the, the big question I have here, and again, just more as an analyst instead of players, just how many interesting things can you sell here, just given the fiction and, um, you know, um, in, in terms of how much specific monetization granularity you can provide. The second is, is the second basis of competition is, is really around um, accessibility. And, and here, you know, a, a, as is pretty clear, Apex is definitely... Um, much more hardcore, more skill-based, more violent, more focused on straight-up battle. And so, in my view, that that definitely narrows the audience relative to Fortnite, which is which is broader. Um, th the third basis of competition, um, for, from my perspective, is, is just tech stability. Not so much an issue for EA and, and Apex, but but certainly, you know, at, anecdotally, when I talk to a lot of Fortnite players that used to play PUBG, you know, one of the key things that they talk about is switching because of server problems and bugs and other things. And um, 
certainly I think that Epic and Fortnite has had a massive advantage from a tech stability perspective coming from an engine company and coming from you know, the, the, the context of having worked on uh, Fortnite for over six years. And, and the final basis of competition, we've, we've talked about this many times before, is, is, is live ops, right? Just, and, and we've already talked about this, but clearly this is an area, um, potentially the most important area where Apex and um, EA need, need to make up ground because Fortnite just is, is and, and, you know, the Epic team there have been performing phenomenally in terms of, you know, whether it's real world or, or whether it's with integrations, new game modes, all that kind of stuff. They've, they've just been doing an incredible job. So anyway, just lo- long story short, um, the conclusion I'm, I'm kind of getting um, reaching is that, you know, Apex Legends seems to be a you know a great game. It, it's a hit, but but definitely compared to to Fortnite, I'd, I'd have to agree with the um, with the article poster that it's it, it's definitely not going to uh, be be sort of um, dethroning Fortnite in any time soon. Um, the one thing that that I do find surprising though is that I I did feel that um, Apex should be taking more of Fortnite's market. It, it doesn't seem like um, just based on some of the numbers and the discussion from you guys that that's been happening to the degree that I would have expected it to. But um, to, to me, that's a little bit surprising because conceptually it seems that that top end hardcore audience should be flipping more to, more to Apex. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I generally don't um, uh, plug anything, but we actually, I'm working with a, a buddy of mine to come up with a analysis on this particular market, the battle Royale market um, and comparing, you know, the, you know, the audience for PUBG, Fortnite, Call of Duty and, and, and Apex. And um, so we're going to be working on that and, and release it. So if anybody's interested, let me know. But, um, you know, part of like the preview is, is that the, the reality of it is, is that Fortnite is a very young demo, more female. And, and, and I've talked to some, buddies at Sony and stuff that basically say that, you know, it was a lot of incremental spend, like incremental users coming to the platform and spending on this thing. And so it was, it was, it's it basically expanded the market. Um, something like Apex does not really expand the market at all. Actually. It just, it basically takes away people from things like Overwatch and Call of Duty, as I said earlier. Um, and the one thing that we know is that Overwatch, you know, maintained a pretty large audience for a while primarily on PC, you know, somewhat not as much on console, but their problem was that they just had no live ops, right? They, they released characters every three or four months and, and they just weren't as aggressive in terms of, of, of maintaining the audience. So fundamentally, I just think that this, this is a great game for that particular core audience. that's more competitive and that you're yeah, right leaderboards and, 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 and kind of what, um, you said earlier uh, that makes sense is that that's the way sh- that is the direction they should go. They should s- steer clear of what what um, of what uh, Fortnite is doing and focus on on wh- who their audience is. And um, and I totally agree with that. Um, but we'll see. You know, they, they they may screw it up. I don't know. You know, they should. Put- yeah, I, I personally would love to see some kind of study like that. Basically, you know, like a characterization of the Fortnite audience. You know, whether whether it's like you know, psychographic or personas or whatever that kind of describe, you know, what kind of players comprise that, that audience relative to Apex, relative to, to other Battle Royale games. So I, I definitely think that kind of study would be uh, pretty awesome. And, and possibly the, the other study that would be interesting is just like a comparison of like the live ops activities of, of a Fortnite relative to Apex and those other games as well. Yeah, I mean, sorry, the last point here is that, you know, Call of Duty tried to replicate that Fortnite model, right? And they added in Battle Pass, right? And within like four weeks, they basically went back to their loot box system because it wasn't working, right? Because that audience doesn't give a shit, you know, excuse my language, but like, you know, they, they, they're they <laughs> into other other things and other ways. They don't want skins for their guns, you know? They want cool, cool stuff, you know? And so, you know, it's just a different, different animal and a different audience. And I think Call of Duty learned it the hard way. Overwatch definitely learned it from the fact that they didn't have enough live ops to support the game. Esports helped maintain it a little bit more, but from a live ops perspective and, 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 you know, upgrading the store on a frequent basis, they just failed. Um, so yeah, we'll see if, if, if Apex can pull it off. I mean, I think the comps are there. I do think again, that they're, they're going to hire the right people. Um, it's just a question of, Will the team listen to them because they are not live ops people, right? They are, you know, story based, big shooters. 
And what's interesting is they've gotten a lot of resurgence, evidently, on um, uh, Titanfall 2, right, which was a dead community for a long time. But now there's a lot of people coming back to Titanfall uh, because it's basically the same kind of game mechanic. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm, again, I'm hopeful, obviously. If I think they're going to do $500 million, that's kind of a bullish statement. So let's, we'll, we'll see if I'm right. Um, one thing on cosmetics, though. Um, yeah, like with Call of Duty and, and their offering, it was... Uh, it was a bit weird this year where they tried to slap on the battle pass system to their loot box system. And it really like, I wouldn't even say it was close to Fortnite because even the battle pass basically just had a bunch of loot boxes in it. And I think the, the player base saw right through that and any sort of um, p- positive PR spin that they would have had by switching to, to battle pass was lost when their player base basically saw that it was just the same loot box system, but call of duty still had a, plenty of cosmetics uh, over the last few years. Of course, they had the, the weapons in their loot box system as well, uh, which drove most of the revenue, but cosmetics were still there. And I think um, for Apex, they, they can be taking a few pages out of uh, Call of Duty, but I think the focus should actually be more towards CSGO uh, and how they actually drove quite a bit of revenue coming from their cosmetic side. And I think part of that was that they were very bold about how they approach their cosmetics, even in the realistic setting that is Counter-Strike. Um, like the, the knives and the weapon skins in that game are ridiculous. Um, and the one nice thing about Apex focusing more on weapon skins instead of on character skins is that it's valuable to everyone. Uh, the problem with their battle pass when they had like four skins that were character specific is if I don't play as those characters, then I don't really care about the skins. Right. So at least with weapon skins, right? Um, I see them all the time, which, you know, visibility is a really, really key aspect in cosmetic value um, that, that that can actually drive value. Yeah, but uh, um, I'm not, yeah. we sh- I don't want to go too deep in this rabbit hole. The problem with the weapon skins on Apex, though, is that they're, they're also gun specific. So you may have the coolest skin on the yeah. planet, but you don't get the gun when you're in the game. You know, like there's some <laughs> disconnect yeah, there yeah, that's that, true. that kind of yeah. irritates me. But anyway... I'm not an expert on this stuff. I'll be honest. I think they should actually hire you as a consultant because you seem to know exactly what you're talking about, I think. Um, but I mean, this is the thing is that they need to listen to people that kind of know what they're talking about rather than an executive. So now I'm going to rant, you know, some executive like <laughs> just saying, hey, make Fortnite and make it work. It's like, no, that's, that's not the way the world works. Right. But that's what they see, you know, do that. Right. And 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 so everyone's like scrambling to like make it work. But Again, we, we, I, we commented on this in the past. I think what, what the really good thing and the, and the reason I'm more bullish on this than if it was – if this was the same thing as, as Battlefield, if Battlefield, like a DICE studio, was making this, I would not be as positive. The reason I'm positive is because Respawn is completely independent, more or less, and they're doing what they need to do and using EA when they need EA, and they need EA right now. And so, But they're still in control, right? And so I think that bodes well for them to actually make the right decisions and make the right um, – you know, decisions on how, how, how they build out this, uh, this system. So we shall see, but yeah, again, they should be hiring you, you know, and, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm quite, I'm moving, quite moving happy. On. I'm brothers. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> moving on to Calibri, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. Uh, article number three. So I think we're going to shift gears quite a bit for this podcast. Uh, this is focusing on say, um, the smaller developers, uh, any developers. So, um, the article is titled How Calibri Games Went from a Minimum Viable Product to 70 Million Installs for its Idle Tycoon Games. Um, and uh, if you don't know too much about Calibri, uh, Calibri is actually started off by students coming straight out of university from Karlsruhe, Germany. Um, now, I think formerly they were called Fluffy Fairy Games, um, and then they renamed their, their studio, I think the last year, called Calibri. Yeah, thank God, right? Um, and now they're... Now they're Berlin-based, and yeah, I definitely approve of that name change. I think Fluffy Fairy actually came from a random name generator, so that's just that's just how indie these guys are. Um, so yeah, they, they created two key games. One is called Idle Miner Tycoon, and one is called Idle Factory Tycoon, with the former, uh, Miner Tycoon, being their, their biggest revenue generator. Um, over the last roughly two and a half years, um, they've generated 70 million installs, they're currently at about 10 million MAU. Um, and from um, a German article, we can actually also say that in 2018, they roughly made about 38 million euros. 
that's 45 million US dollars uh, for 2018. And um, that's uh, roughly around GDC last year, they announced that they were making about 100,000 euros a day. And according to a German article, they doubled that um, over the last year. So uh, now they're roughly sitting at about, say, 200,000 uh, 200, euros per day. Um, so this is amazing for students coming directly out of university. Um, and I think what makes this more impressive is actually that Idle Miner was built in less than 60 days initially. Um, and of course, has grown into their long-term revenue driver um, over the last two and a half years. And, and of course, doubling its revenue in the last year. Um, this is incredible. So I think most of these stories, for, for most of us, we would say this doesn't really happen anymore in mobile. Everybody's trying to build the next match three RPG battle royale hit. And each of these games take two, three, four years to, to properly go through pre-production, get it together, get it out to market. Um, so these types of stories are definitely very, very inspiring. And, um, for me, actually, this was the topic that I brought up at GDC because I found it was really, really interesting, uh, just to talk about the idol genre, uh, where it still continually kind of comes out with these stories. So idol miner was 60 days to develop. Um, and I think even tap Titans, which was produced, um, you know, years, years before this also had a very similar story where very, very small budget, very small team. Uh, can launch the game and then grow it over time, uh, which is really kind of the focus of this article. Um, Idol as a genre is still very, very small. So, you know, EA isn't exactly going to start moving into this genre, but as a smaller developer, especially if you're just starting up as a startup, um, this is exactly the type of genre that you want to be going after, um, especially with its focus around um, economies and live ops. Um, there's lots and lots of fertile ground here. Um, but in terms of the article, uh, one thing that they went into that I'd like to talk to you guys about on is they quickly, um, it goes into how quickly they managed to develop their prototypes, launch games and respond to player feedback. Um, their process is that they have one week dev sprints where they basically focus on player feedback, uh, constantly changing the game. Great. Um, and as a result, they have a day one retention in Idle Miner, roughly about 75%, and Idle Factory is 70%, which is, you know, these are incredible numbers. Uh, but from their perspective, what they do is they focus just on that D1 metric. Um, during those uh, initial prototyping st stages, all they're trying to do is get their D1 retention to be that high, 75%, 70%. Um, and in my experience, like I, I have never worked on a game that, that had 75% day one retention, but I can say that there is still plenty of cases where, you know, you have a lower D1 retention, but your D7, D14, D30 um, just flatlines. And that's really where the business case takes off. So from my take, um, while I, I really appreciate what they've done to the, to the genre and, um, I think these guys are incredible for what they've done. Uh, I'm just not quite sure about what the takeaway from this article is, is that D1 retention is all that matters. Uh, Eric, do you want to go in? I mean, the day one retention targets are always relatively high is from my experience, but you know, in the 40 to 50% range, but 75 is just unprecedented. <laughs> not I've, I've never seen. Um, you know, I kind of love these stories because it really gives, you know, indies hope <laughs> to some degree, but these seem, these stories seem to be more rare every year, you know, um, I think it's a very challenging part of the overall business, but I will say that, uh, these games are a ton better than that hyper casual garbage that everyone was talking about six months ago. Um, and I think likely a little bit more sustainable than, than those games, but you know, overall kudos, you know, that, that they come out with something that's super compelling and, and, and that's doing well. And, um, yeah, but, uh, I, I don't think that this is something that, you know, the big guys are going to be all that interested in, you know? They're going to be more of the traditional copy paste, copy paste, license, license type stuff. So, what do you think, JK? So, for for me, I um, you know I, I think that for them, their their approach and their strategy made a lot of sense. I, I one one of the things that I, I'd caution though is is that in, in terms of like adopting this MVP strategy, I think that you need to take the situational context in in mind, meaning that. 
not every game category you'd want to just like focus on the bare minimum of features. I think there are certain, especially like established, more mature game categories where you're really going to be competing, not necessarily on like the core game mechanics, which are already established and proven, but uh, there are some games which I, I believe that uh, requ- are going to require a more holistic experience to um, to actually be more successful. Um, and uh, you know, I, I actually so so I yeah you know, so the first point being like make, making sure that you keep the situational situational context in mind, and the second point being that um, so I actually do like their um, their 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 focus, and so. You know, not necessarily focusing on D1 retention specifically, but, the, you know, and, and I saw Oliver Loeffler's uh, version of this presentation at RoboCon last year where there was a specific slide that showed that, you know, that was all that they were focusing on. Um, and for young guys, I thought that that was very impressive that they really in, understood how important it is to not to try to, like, focus and execute a hundred different things at a time, but really to just focus on one thing at a time to, like, really rally the team around, um, you know, what is the key thing that they need to move? And so it's basically this, you know, what, what Mark Zuckerberg did at Facebook and this, this concept, which is now called the North star metric. And it's getting a lot of play and some major like Silicon Valley meme now, but, um, I, I just thought it was pretty impressive that they, uh, sort of understood that. And, and that, um, I, I personally, um, I'm a big fan of, of that kind of a, of approach where you get the team to focus on one thing at a time. So um, agree with you, Eric. Good story, good guys, and wish them continued success. So yeah, with that, should we uh, jump to yeah. our last article? How Bioware's Anthem went wrong. Um, here we go. This is like a pretty complex story, complex topic, and a very, you know, obviously long story that, that was written by the Kotaku guys. Um, you know, I, I was planning on like doing some kind of expose and like researching this and doing a timeline and all this other stuff. And I just realized that it would take a lot of time to do that. So I'm going to speak more high level beats on, on what I think happened. Um, I really do recommend that you guys read this article. Um, um, kudos to Jason Schreier at Kotaku who put this thing together. Um, he also wrote the Diablo article, which was really interesting as well. You know, frankly, I haven't really seen this kind of coverage, um, you know, on the, uh, on the dysfunction studio dynamics. That's, you know, because a lot of times like these type of things happen with almost all studios, like there's all kinds of drama in terms of development on how this stuff works. These are particularly more, you know, insane and to some degree, but um, I, I, you know, Jason's really kind of stepping up and, and finding the right people and talking to them and, and reporting it. So what I would suggest is actually read through it. It's quite a long article, but um, you know, a lot of what he was saying was things that I was tracking, you know, talking to my buddies at Bioware and, and EA corporate and stuff. Um, so uh, I think there's a lot of accuracy in how he reports these things. And the Diablo article was also very accurate. So fundamentally the quick summary of this article, and this is a very quick summary because obviously it's a very long article, you know, the game started, Sorry, the uh, Anthem's game development started in 2012. Um, and fundamentally, it was kind of plagued with kind of indecision and mismanagement. And I'm going to get to why I think that was uh, a little bit later. Um, the Frostbite engine has been kind of Achilles' heel for EA. I think it's it's given them a competitive advantage, but it's also become quite of a struggle for them, for some developers to adopt. And so Bioware just did, did not really, it did not work for them. And that was a real struggle for them as well. And then also they had some real conflict within the two big studios within Bioware, um, the Austin and the Canada studio, Alberta, uh, Edmonton one. Um, and they just kind of like started fighting with each other internally. Um, and then the other thing is that there were big losses in leadership during the development of the process um, for a variety of reasons, you know, burnout, stress, de- depression. Like it was just a really terrible place to be. And I think they, they lost a lot of people during that time. Um and then finally, you know, it's EA's push. You know, EA was pushing for software as a service, but Bioware fundamentally was a developer of single-player um, story-based RPGs. And I don't think there is or has been a real happy medium between those two. And I think that was kind of at the center of all this conflict. Um, so I'm not going to go over the entire article because I think it's just, you know, it's it's just a lot of material to cover. But I think it's definitely worth a read. Um, but um, but 
fundamentally, I think what this encapsulates is this constant battle between corporate interests and creative vision, right? This is something that's been going on in video games forever, right? And uh, one of the executives at uh, EA in my early years uh, there said is, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing, but nothing is more difficult in the games business than managing creatives. You know, distribution, platform relationships, licensors, operations, finance, et cetera, are nothing compared to managing the creative process with creative people. And I think that is like the fundamental kind of issue that um, that Bioware has had in, in its history, but also and and it kind of manifests itself into um, with Anthem. And so, you know, again, this goes a lot back a lot further than Anthem. This is actually started when the when EA acquired them back in two thousand seven. So, I, I I think at the time EA's relationship with 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 Bioware was quite good. You know, Dragon's Age Origins did quite well. Mass Effect two and Mass Effect three. You know, that really helped EA get on the map from a from a RPG perspective. Um, you know, Mass Effect 3 had some issues with the, you know, controversial ending and created some drama, but I think mo- most most was forgiven and the game sold very well. But my understanding back from that days and uh, is that really it was Star Wars The Old Republic that kind of created the beginning of the end or the challenges for the Bioware Studios and, as a whole. I think there was a fundamental difference in in what corporate wanted and what, what uh, Bioware wanted to do with that particular game. And you know, Bioware really wanted to create a story-based RPG, right? And Frank Jabot and the rest of the execs were huge fans of WoW, and they just wanted to create a WoW in the Star Wars universe, right? Um, and Ray and Greg, the, the the founders of Bioware, just wanted to create more of a story-based MMO, which had frankly had never been done at that time. Um but they wanted to create a game in which focused on character development and big story beats. Um, um, and, and that would be the drive of, of retention for a subscription based MMO. Um, you know, kind of on a side note, I actually heard what this original design was on this thing. And basically what they would do is you would, and if anyone's played the game, the game was actually quite good. Um, but, but, but anyway, what, what you would do is you would go through the stories of each of the classes and build up a family of different character classes, right? And so you build your, you know, you're kind of like, you're, you're not mafia. I don't know how to explain it, but you build a, build your um, family of classes and then, then you progress through the story. And so you basically, they, they would streamline the leveling process for each of the uh, classes um, and hope to engage the audiences with multiple playthroughs for different classes. It would have been interesting to see if it was successful, but it certainly was not something that was really, you know, proven at that point, right? It would be much more uh, innovative, uh, but it sounded really cool. Um, but anyway, what ended up happening is they bath- basically created this bad combination of stories and, and end game, you know, uh, uh, progression. So similar to wow. And the game was just a cumbersome mess, right? There was just basically it just wasn't anything. It wasn't an, it wasn't wow. And it wasn't, you know, the, the vision that, that Bioware had, and what ended up happening is that there's a lot of people that played the game, but they churned out really fast. And so the game kind of was a disaster. But behind the scenes, the drama behind this development process was insane. And I'm not going to go into it too deeply because it's just not worth it. But, you know, not only is it the, the, the battle between corporate and Bioware, but there was also a battle with the licensor. You know, Lucas is by far the most one of the most challenging licensors to deal with, you know, on, on the on the on the spectrum of of. Uh, Mad uh, NFL and, and NBA, um, and you know it was just a real challenging development to get things done in this game, and it was all and they were also using an engine which was old and 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 not contemporary, and that was a real challenge as well. So anyway, what all this ended up happening is that the game failed, and then you know nine months later, ten months later, both the founders of Bioware leave. Right, Ray and Greg just had enough. We're out, right? And then Casey Hudson, another director, left. Um, that was a, one of the big guys for Mass Effect. And then during this Anthem process, um, you know, David Gator, who was a writer, left. Right. So what does this all have to do with Anthem? I'm <laughs> coming back to Anthem is like the fundamental disconnect between Bioware and EA on Anthem was uh, was the same as as this this uh, MMO was. They wanted to do a story-based RPG, and EA really wanted them to do software as a service. They wanted to create a looter shooter to compete against Destiny, right? So when 
management says we want to create a destiny in this universe, the the fundamental thing is that Bioware doesn't the Bioware people don't want to do that, and so they they fight and they and they and they they they, they want to create their own um, vision on what they want to do, and so they try to maintain that. The problem is that there's just no coming to minds on this stuff. And so if you read through in, in the article, you can see that there was really no agreement about the direction of this product, right? And so, you know, and on top of that, there was no leadership to be the buffer between what corporate wants and what the creative guys at the studio want. So with all management gone, all you have is a bunch of bureaucrats that are being put in place by EA that are just checking boxes and, and there's no alignment, right? And so... This is, this is, again, my biggest worry about... Sorry, this is another side note here that we've talked about before. This is my really biggest worry about Morheim leaving Blizzard, right? Is because Morheim was the buffer, right, between these a- Activision bureaucrats and, and, and the, re- the, the creative people at Blizzard. And ultimately, what will happen is that these vision for, you know, will dissipate at Blizzard. And it would be really sad if that happened. So anyway, that's just a side note. This is, made me think about this. But um, so anyway, what happened was... Finally, when they released this 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 video last year at E3, the game development really began because with that video created the vision that they can coalesce on. The biggest problem, and ultimately it was basically a looter shooter similar to what you know Destiny and and Division are. The problem with that is that they only had like what nine, ten, twelve months of development, you know, and that was just not enough to create the game that competes with the depth of destiny and division right so you had an amazing i think what i consider an amazing mechanic with the game but a terrible story and little or no progression and certainly no end game to speak of and when you juxtapose that with something like division which just came out as well i mean division was just fully featured i mean there's just 100 hours of stuff to do in that game and 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 there's just no way that anthem could have reached that in in nine months development time from that trailer so to be clear, like the article kind of obviously is is basically talking about Bioware as kind of the victim here, but there is, you know, there's 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 a combination of both, right? If there was someone at Bioware that had really stepped up to voice to be the voice of the studio, or t- created a creative vision that that actually bridged the gap between the concept of, of Bioware and the concept of, of of management, maybe they would have been able to execute against you know something that would have been really really successful. But because there was such a void left, I think, within Bioware after a lot of these big, you know, leaders left, um, and again, they had no buffer, that it just became a, a total disaster from a development perspective. And, uh, and, and basically the game, in my view anyway, there's just no way of actually getting it, getting it back on track. I think it's kind of done um, at this point. And again, I think I've stated this before, I worry about what's going to happen with that Bioware team um, going forward, uh, you know, the Edmonton team, I think will be okay, but the guys in Austin, um, could be at risk, um, going forward. What do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in. So, uh, you know, I had a little bit of a different take from you, but, um, mainly in the sense of like, you know, uh, I didn't read as much in terms of like the, the bureaucrats versus studio battle as, as much as you did. But from my perspective, I felt like there, you know, the way I took uh, what what I took was like three major problems, just kind of simplifying the whole story. And then the first, I'll totally agree with you, is that like there there definitely seemed to be this this theme around a, a lack of a you know single creative vision holder. Basically, you know, someone who owns the overall game vision and understands the entire game from a holistic perspective. This is a very common problem in game development, and when you don't have that person, um, it you know, it generally leads to to uh, bad outcomes, and and clearly that was one of the key problems um, on on this game as well. Uh, the second point I wanted to make, which uh, which I thought was was interesting that I, I read from the article, was just a, a problem with with their leadership, right? And and mainly having to do with like a decision making framework or process. It, it seemed like you know that dis- key decisions weren't being made and that they were being tabled, and so like. From a leadership perspective, you know who makes and how to make decisions. This this is actually a, a much larger um, issue and problem that we we could probably talk for hours about. But that clearly seemed to have been a problem for them. 
And, and finally, the, the third problem that I saw was just a lack of good process and, and planning. And, um, and maybe at the risk of going um, on a bit of a tangent here, um, there, there are actually, um, you know, I believe in this theory, and I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this theory about different kinds of artists, but, um, but there's, there's a theory that there's, there's actually two kinds of artists. Basically, there are Cezanne or Picasso type artists. And, and, and what this means is that from a creative perspective, you're either a Picasso, which is, you know, an, an artist who before he would paint, um, you know, any of his paintings would take extremely detailed notes, you know, like he'd fill up notebooks and, and just plan everything out meticulously before he drew his painting. And then there was Cezanne who was the opposite. Cezanne was more of an iterator, right? And, and so what Cezanne would do is he would draw, throw it out, start again with a slight iteration, throw it out, do another painting until he eventually gets to the painting that he wanted to get to. And so the reason why I bring this up is because generally a lot of creatives use this as an excuse for a lack of good process and planning. But the fact is that there are, you know, you're not going to be able to get for that type of artist. There, there's a certain amount of like process and planning that you're not going to be able to get rid of. But there are, but certainly I think that, that, um, from reading the, the article, it seemed that there was a fundamental problem with some types of process and planning that could have been done to make the, um, the game development process much more, more efficient. And I, I think one of the symptomatic um, anecdotes in, in the article was the fact that nobody checked the trademark for the name until like one week before launch, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, it just seems like um, that whole team was probably very yeah, disorganized. You know, yeah, but I mean, that, that, that I kind take. of agree with what you're saying to some degree, I, I guess what I would just kind of counter it with is that um, with the right leadership in place, like the, you know, Ray and um, I just blanked on his name, but you know, those guys are the ones that help manage these process. So you, oh, sorry, you think about someone like uh, you know, the, the Hauser brothers that have been doing GTA forever and, and red dead recently, right. They have complete autonomy, right. It's, they make all the decisions, right. It's a very, very, very top tops down type decision approach. That really works in a creative environment because they have a vision for something and they can do that. But they also have the flexibility of doing that because they create this opuses every six years, right? But the fundamental problem is that the business has changed, right? Now, people would argue this back and forth. Single player experiences are, are clearly not dead because Sony has every studio in their in their group that have done that. But that's not where the major AAA publishers are going, right? They want software as a service, but that that vision does not align with what Bioware has done their entire, you know, um, history. Right. So what I was, what I'm trying to articulate with, with what, what I said earlier is that if the leadership was in place, that was more flexible in their thinking and could adjust to the changing market dynamics, as opposed to be, uh, you know, focused on, on what they've done best for the last, you know, 15 years, like that is a way of actually circumventing this problem. But they were so disgusted with the whole situation. They just left and then left this void where there was no one making these decisions. So you could have the frameworks in place that you're talking about, but if there's leadership, that's not there to make the decisions that will actually impact those creatives, then it's, it, then it's, 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 it's moot, right? It's, it's, it's it, it won't work. Um, so again, without the right in, in a creative world, and, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but in a creative world, you need people that people respect to 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 drive the vision and and navigate um, in order to uh, you know move them in a different direction from what they've done in the past. Is kind of what I was I'm thinking, and right. And to to your point, Eric, some of the things that sometimes happens when like leadership um, leaves an organization is that a lot of the process and planning that was at that top can, you know, um, can get spread down. And then there might be several different teams or sub teams that come up with different process and different planning. And, and then to like, you know, get something that everyone agrees to, or that's adopted across the organization becomes much more difficult. So I, I would agree with that point that, that you were saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping the best for those guys. I really do love what, what Bioware has done. Um, but I think, yeah, in the past, but I, but I, I do think that they are going to be in a in a tough spot, um, you know, going forward. And you know, there was also talk about the Dragon Age announcement was kind of a hail mary. You know, it wasn't even approved by EA. Like they're really early on that. So um, 
you know, we'll see. We'll see what they do with with that studio um, and and that organization and the, and their franchises. Um, I was a huge Mass Effect fan, and that last game was just horrid. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I played through that one as well. Yeah, I just couldn't. I, could. uh, I wanted it to get better, but it never. No, did. I know. I mean, I kept playing and playing. I think I got into like 12, 15 hours, and I'm like, God, this sucks. <laughs> I just can't do it. You know. Yeah. Meanwhile, I think I'm at my like 80th hour on Division Two. So you know, maybe. My chase has evolved as well, perhaps. Yeah, but I, but I think like going back to your point about games as a service and the the DNA of Bioware being so much about these story driven games, uh, I, I just don't know how you you marry the two, right? Like, I, I know everyone expected with Anthem to be you know Mass Effect but looter shooter, but those two concepts are so contrary to each other. I'm not sure if you'd ever be able to do it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I've actually made that point many times is that the more you do that, the the less the experience is going to be. You just you just can't have one with the other to some degree. You know, you know, Destiny did a reasonably good job of it, you know, I and the story in Division 2 is kind of eh, but um but yeah, it's, it serves its purpose. Yeah, it's kind of one or the other, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe someone will figure out eventually. It's just that the 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 linear nature and of a story-based experience is just completely diametrically opposed to the absolute like grinding for end game and min maxing every single piece of gear that you got. And, and, you know, and, and so, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Cause eventually all you want to do is how do I get to that piece of gear as fast as possible? Right. And Oh crap, this story is in the middle of it. I'm just going to skip it. <laughs> yeah. I agree. All right. Well, there we have it. We are now at the end of this podcast. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, if you have any feedback for us, please hit us up on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. And um, yeah, that's thanks, all there is. Thanks, everybody.